It is projected that by 2050, the amount of land usable to grow coffee can shrink up to 80% in Latin America alone. You're listening to Cooler Earth, a podcast of climate exchange. Your weekly dive into energy transitions, sustainability, environmental politics, and all things climate change. Each week, we feature special guests and in-depth discussions with your hosts, Amanda Griffiths, Ryan Maya, and Maria Virginia Olano. On this episode, we're focusing on agriculture and how climate change is going to be impacting the yields of crops, the growing seasons, and even increases in extreme weather events and how that adds to unpredictability. Yeah, and the UNFCCC has said that climate resilient agriculture isn't just important in itself. It's really important because food security worldwide intersects with social well-being and economic well-being. So the plight of farmers affects our everyday lives in a lot of ways. Right. And it makes sense that agriculture is going to be more directly impacted than other sectors of our economy because your yield is directly impacted by whether you have a good growing season. And those are being impacted by changes in precipitation, heat, temperature. It all goes back directly how our environment's being changed. And this is specifically true in the global south, where most agriculture is dependent on rain to Mm -hmm. grow. They don't have man-made solutions to deal with variability in their environment and their climate. And those produce of fruit are what gets imported into the United States and the European Union. So it's not just countries in the global south that are going to feel the effects when they are impacted, they're crop yields, but it's the rest of the world since we have such an interconnected food security system around the world. Yeah, it's such a globalized world when it comes to things like food and drinks. Most of our coffee beans that we end up drinking here in America are not from America. We do grow some wine grapes, though, Napa, (laughs) which just emerged on the global scene for wine. But as we've seen with the droughts in California, even Napa Valley has been impacted. And how the grapes that are used for wine taste are so dependent on the climate of -hmm. of where they're grown, too. So... Yeah, and speaking of California, actually two-thirds of the fruits and nuts that our country produces are produced there, and more than a third of the vegetables we make in the country are also produced in California. And sadly, more than half of the Central Valley is projected to no longer be suitable for growing crops like apricots, peaches, plums, and walnuts sometime around the middle of this century. By the end of the century, that's actually projected to grow to 90% or more of California being unsuitable for those crops. And the same is true for corn. So corn is a big, big Mm. crop in the United States (laughs) that not only serves to produce a lot of our food products, but also feeds uh, livestock. It does. It. I mean, it it goes into almost every product that you're using every day. It's in your toothpaste. It's in, it's, it's everywhere. So it's a huge, we just have huge swaths of land that are entirely dedicated to growing corn in the country. And those farmers, if those yields are impacted, that's really drastic for them. And a global rise in temperatures of just one degree Celsius, that's 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, would actually slow the rate of growth of corn by 7%, which would have a huge impact on the U.S. economy. Because like like we said, it's not just about the farmers that are directly impacted, 
but about、mm-hmm. the entire supply chain from the meat industry to all of the other industries that are dependent on corn and corn syrup、yeah. for the products.、Right. And a seven percent slowing the growth of the corn. Imagine our economy slowing down seven percent.、Right. Mm-hmm. How huge of an impact、yeah. that would have!、Uh, so of course it's not that drastic. Right. It's not the same as slowing the entire economy, but that's a really big impact for a really important industry in America. It is, and when you have these changing weather patterns, it's not only leading to shifts in growing seasons、um, or possibly shortening them, but it's also creating environments where either fungus or, or other kind of invasive species or, or bacteria can then infect. Those crops, and that also can lead to not only just a reduction in your yield, but it can completely obliterate、right. an entire farm's production. Especially if you're relying on one crop and not really diversifying what you're growing too. And that's what's happened in Central America with coffee plantations,、mm-hmm. with the coffee rust that、mm-hmm. was a fungus caused by higher than average temperatures and shifting weather, weather patterns, and that actually decimated a lot of crops in the region. Yeah. Yeah, and we're seeing that in Africa too, where actually the number of regions suitable for growing coffee is predicted to fall from between 65 to 100 percent as the climate、mm-hmm. warms. So the coffee growing regions in Africa might be completely unable to grow coffee. Within the next few decades, right. And what we're seeing too is the different plants are impacted by changes in their environment differently. So we're looking at changes in temperature, precipitation, carbon dioxide, and these are all things that are really integral to how a plant grows. Chocolate and the cacao plants that chocolate come from, rising temperatures and water short- shortages, they're causing evapotranspiration, which is the water that the plants release in those trees, and so that causes them to lose way more water than they should be. And that in turn reduces how much they can grow, which is reducing their yield. So less chocolate with climate change. And this is not only going to affect food security, but actually, according to the Food and Agriculture Organization, more than sixty percent of the world's population depends on agriculture in some way or another for their livelihoods. And in many cases, specifically in developing nations, agriculture is a way out of poverty for many of the citizens who rely on generations-old. Farms and crops、right. to create a livelihood. So this means that agriculture and the ways in which we can make agriculture resilient to climate change is going to be linked directly with development and with the way we conceive a pathway out of poverty for billions of people around the world.、Mm-hmm. Precisely for this reason, there is a lot of ways in which, in the future, we can think about linking together climate resilience with international development, and that would mean rethinking the way we have done development up until now, but in many ways making it more cohesive with the kind of future that we're going to need, and that entails bottom-up innovation approaches as well as top-down policy that enables that kind of change. Yeah, we hear a lot of flack on GMOs,、uh, genetically modified、mm-hmm. organisms. Monsanto is something that <laughs> comes to mind. But really, drought-resistant crops,、mm-hmm. certain GMOs that are being developed to adapt to these、uh, climate conditions, are, I think, going to be a critical aspect of adapting to the climate and making sure that the world, especially in developing countries, that the agricultural sector is able to、mm-hmm. stay afloat, that their entire crops aren't wiped out. Right. I think GMOs have a great potential to help. Communities adapt to climate change, and as long as we are able to get those 
those seeds and those resources to actual communities. And what we say with Monsanto being this huge corporation, there is the possibility, and we're seeing it now even, where all of the seeds that can really adapt to changes in climate are not making it to the communities where they would make the most difference. Or those seeds are making it to the communities, but they're really expensive and they can't reproduce. And so it's just keeping power concentrated in a larger corporation. So I think that GMOs have great potential. And honestly, like agriculture, its entire history mm-hmm. is genetically modifying plants. I mean, it's what farmers have been doing for since... Millennia. Right, exactly. So I don't see the issue with GMOs. I just, we need to make sure that those adaptations with seeds and crops are happening in the right places and with people that they're actually going to benefit. Definitely. Yeah. And that could be an entire episode in itself. GMOs, the debate behind yeah. that, the, yeah. the troubles and the, the benefits. I think GMOs get a bad rep they unnecessarily. Do. When yeah. like in truth, they have the potential, as you say, mm-hmm. to save millions of lives and really provide us food security, especially in the projections we have for the future. But again, that's the problem is mm-hmm. the patenting of those seeds in these massive corporations that don't let farmers kind of take back their own crops. Yeah, I mean, it's something that we touched on with our energy democracy episode mm-hmm. too. We don't want to keep the system where it's concentrating power in the system that we already have in place. Yeah. So it's a, it's great. It's a great innovation and it has such great potential, but it needs to be delivered appropriately. Exactly. Definitely. Yeah. But I can't really think of a certain GMO that would be able to adapt to the horrors of hurricanes, which actually have Mm -hmm. a huge impact on the agricultural sector. Uh, So recently, Hurricane Maria, as we all know, devastated Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, uh, you might not have heard this statistic, actually lost 80% of its crops to the hurricane. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's an enormous amount of its uh, agricultural product and its ability to produce food and feed its people, which you can imagine in the aftermath of a hurricane is of essential Mm -hmm. importance. And Hurricane Mitch, uh, back in 1998, a Category 5 hurricane, it killed more than 7,000 people in Honduras, left 20% of the country homeless, and it had a huge impact on the country's agricultural sector. They didn't have uh, the necessary climate resilience resources and just was devastated. Our interviewee today, Professor Laura Kuhl of Northeastern University, uh, she's done a lot of field work in Honduras as well as Ethiopia, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, and New England. She's collaborated with the Global Environment Facility, Jeff, the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, and UNNDP. She has a PhD in International Affairs from the Fletcher School of Tufts University. Hello, Professor Kuhl, and thank you so much for being here with us today. It's great to be here. So we are hoping to talk to you about your research abroad, which you have done a lot of, from Ethiopia, Honduras, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador. How have you seen farming communities around all of these places that you've traveled and researched been impacted by climate change? Yeah, so I've done a lot of work with farming communities, and probably one of the areas where I've worked most closely is in Honduras. One of the things that's really interesting about meeting with farmers is that they're really more in touch with what's happening 
happening on the ground than those of us that live in urban areas. And so I think they're really at the forefront of understanding these these climate impacts. And so when I talked to farmers, they had really insightful comments on kind of the many different ways that the climate was already impacting them. One of the things that in Honduras they would tend to speak about is what the, the environment was like when they were a child and how that compared to what it was like today. And for them, kind of for everyone in the country, Hurricane Mitch, mm-hmm. which occurred in 1998, it was this huge hurricane that devastated the country, kind of destroyed about 80% of the country's GDP. Um, was really this defining moment in the country's history and everyone kind of marks life as what happened before Mitch and what happened after. Um, and so now when they talk about climate change, they're thinking about what was life like before that and now, and they said that now kind of the rains are erratic and it's, things are all crazy now. It's totally crazy is the most common way they describe it. Whereas before they're like, we could predict exactly when we could plant, how, how it would be, and now we just can't can't know what to expect. And so it was less about specific impacts and more about the predictability that really was stressful for them. One of the other things that was really striking while I was there, I did a lot of field work in 2012, and the coffee rust epidemic swept across Central America during that time. And in Honduras, about 50% of the coffee crop was lost. And so I met with a lot of farmers who were dealing with their entire plantations that all of their livelihood was built sort of surrounding coffee and often I would meet with them and there'd be these just bare trees with not even a single leaf or a berry on it and they were in the process of planting little tiny seedlings hoping to rebuild their coffee farms and they were quite concerned recognizing that these kind of fungal diseases are things that as precipitation and temperature increase in the area that it will get sort of more intense. One of the things that was concerning is that when I asked them about what kind of adaptation strategies they might have, a lot of times they were really at a loss and they said the only thing we can do is pray. We can just hope that God will take care of this problem. But they also were quite aware that this was kind of a a global trend. They understood climate change and so they were pretty despondent really. But on that topic of risk, those risks are only going to be exacerbated as the climate continues to change. And I think that's very related with the social justice and equity issue, that Mm -hmm. it is these people living in poverty or under poverty lines around the world that are going to be the most affected. So do you see any ways that there's adaptation strategies or climate change solutions that take this social justice view into account? Actually, social justice was really what drew me to to research on adaptation in the first place. For me, adaptation is all about justice. And I really struggled as I was kind of starting out in the climate change space with mitigation versus adaptation. And particularly 10 years ago, there was a lot more emphasis on mitigation and activism and a lot of movement. And for me, it never quite resonated. Don't get me wrong. I think mitigation is super, super important. And I'm really glad that there's a lot of people working on it. But it wasn't until I sort of came into the adaptation space that I really felt like my interest in international development and poverty and 
justice and climate change all came together. And one of the things that to me is most optimistic or encouraging about adaptation is it's a space where kind of development priorities and climate priorities really align very well. And a lot of times what's in the best interest of a community or even an individual household in terms of their own economic development is also likely to be in, in alignment with adaptation priorities. And so to me, this adaptation represents a real chance to kind of step back and think critically about the way that we've been doing development in the past and perhaps recognizing some of those fundamental barriers to development and providing kind of a new a new lens to think about approaches that might be more just. And do you think that's where we're going? That so what I'm thinking of is maybe we will continue to spend money around the world on development that does not take into account adaptation. But at the same time, you have the IPCC increasingly linking climate change with the sustainable development goals of the United Nations, which seems like a huge opportunity because there's so much momentum and so much funding for those goals that can be linked to adaptation and mitigation strategies. Do you think this is a possibility and something that's actually um, happening now? So there's a couple different ways I want to tackle that. Um, one is that I do think that we have to have approaches to doing adaptation that integrate climate change. I think it's so clear that climate change is going to influence the results of that regular development objectives and that development outcomes are going to be in jeopardy if we don't incorporate climate change. And so I think that's that's essential. And I think that you're right that there's a fairly large danger that that we won't sufficiently understand the vulnerabilities and resilience implications of all development interventions. At the same time, I think that we have to recognize that sort of climate finance alone is never going to be sufficient for addressing these adaptation challenges. And as I was saying previously, the, the types of challenges that are, that make people vulnerable mm-hmm. aren't limited to climate change alone. Right. Um, it's really kind of these broader underlying issues around resilience that need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't make sense to expect climate finance to be able to sort of do all of that work on its own. So I think we need to to be smarter about the development assistance, mm-hmm. though, and the way that we're doing development. At the same time, I think that we still need that dedicated climate finance that, that will allow us to really pilot new approaches mm-hmm. um, and do some of the experimentation before we're ready to necessarily integrate it into larger scale um, development initiatives. So we had a conversation on a previous episode that was about vaccines and a project to get vaccines to certain areas. It was kind of the imminent challenge of we're still trying to figure out routes to get this delivered to this area um, and like really that last leg of the journey. So there's the imminent kind of need to get this established right now because it's going to impact people's lives right now. But five to 10 years from now, there are going to be changes, climate-related changes. So do we take that into account now when that might delay implementation? Or how much time is it going to take to revise that? Are we going to continually be revising plans and strategies every, you know, five years? And so it's this balance of the immediate need for for services or or for different plans and funding and then the long-term impact 
When I talk to government officials in developing countries, this is something that they they feel extremely frustrated by, mm-hmm. and particularly that a lot of the climate development projects have. There's been a lot of work going into vulnerability assessments mm-hmm. and plans. There's kind of this question of when's the money to actually do it on the ground. Right. And for me, this is where the concept of resilience is really powerful um, in that I think that provides a lens for thinking about both climate impacts Mm -hmm. and kind of current development challenges at the same time. I think that there's a real danger, and this is stronger among academics, and as you get closer to the field, it gets a little bit less so, of being concerned about the lack of data saying, well, we don't know what to do because we don't know exactly what the impacts will look like. We don't have the climate projections. How do we do a vulnerability assessment if we don't even understand these basics? And that's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. There's a serious lack of data, particularly in developing countries. But with a resilience perspective, there's a lot of interventions that could be done right now Mm -hmm. that we know would build kind of the general adaptive capacity of communities. And on that note of government and the role of policy and policy change in directing all of these changes and implementations, how have you seen or have you seen any changes or shifts in policy in the countries that you've worked in? Adaptation is a really exciting space to be in right now because the policy landscape is moving really, really fast. Um, countries are very much engaged on this topic. They're really interested in designing new policies and pretty much all of it's new. I would say in terms of kind of concrete on the ground policy implementation, we're just at the very cutting edge. There hasn't been a lot yet, but There's a lot of very thoughtful design and integration going on. Say five years ago, there's very little. Now there's a bit more. And in five years from now, we'll be seeing kind of an explosion of of adaptation policy. As we've kind of been talking about throughout this, though, adaptation policy alone is not the only type of policy that's going to be important. And so looking at how economic policy is either creating kind of an enabling environment for adaptation or constrains the options um, is also really important. And a lot of the work that I do so thinks about the, the tensions or the synergies between different policies. Is there alignment between kind of your agricultural policy and your water policy and your climate policy and your disaster policy <laughs> and your sustainable development goal plan and your nationally determined contribution to the Paris Agreement right. and your adaptation plan? There's kind of particularly with all of these global initiatives, there's kind of a proliferation of policies going on. And I think countries are really struggling to how to align those and make sure they're consistent. One example of where this was attention was in Ethiopia. So their economic development plan, their growth and transformation plan, which is kind of the five-year plan guiding the country's economic development, had a target for the livestock sector to grow substantially. At the same time, they had a climate resilient green economy plan, which was their climate strategy that said that emissions from the livestock sector were going to decline dramatically. Mm. And while in some places it might be 
sort of technically feasible to increase your number of livestock while decreasing emissions. Livestock production in Ethiopia is actually quite efficient, and speaking with livestock experts in the country, it wasn't at all clear that that was a technical possibility. They're already kind of on the close to the margin of what's feasible. So these kinds of policy tensions are things that that policymakers, I think, are really struggling with. Yeah, and I I think policy too, it tends to be done really piecemeal. And so you'll see it too, even in Massachusetts or New England, seeing they're kind of beginning with the executive offices to align and have meetings that are climate change based, but across different secretaries, just to try to make the trajectory kind of moving forward. But when you look at the legislative process, I mean, people are trying to get things passed as they can. And so you're getting small bits of language passed here and there. And it is really difficult to draw a line and see, okay, this, this is all making sense. And this will actually lead to what we want it to lead to. And it's not kind of intersecting with different yeah, different things. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely a challenging. One of the things that I've seen be fairly successful is setting up kind of climate change task force that mm-hmm. mandated to mm-hmm. to do that that intersectional work because climate change does cut across all of these different sectors. And Mm -hmm. especially when you start thinking about adaptation impacts, it's going to affect every single sector. And so having a strategy that that prioritizes among those many different competing needs is really important. And adaptation mitigation and climate change in general is also a space where innovation is critical. And not only will we need those top-down policy approaches, we need definitely bottom-up solutions that are innovative. And so I was wondering if you had experienced any specific success stories in agriculture anywhere in the world of innovation that worked. It's a great question. So, in fact, my the title of my dissertation was Innovation for Climate Change Adaptation. So um, I strongly agree that innovation is, is really key. I mean, we see the need for innovation both in mitigation and in adaptation, but there's been really very little work thinking about climate change adaptation from an innovation perspective. But... If you think about it, the definite, like the fundamental definition of adaptation is changing in response to new needs or changing in situations. Right. And what's the definition of innovation? <laughs> changing in response to new needs and, and requirements of society. So I actually think that innovation is a really powerful way to think about adaptation. One example of a really interesting agricultural innovation that was very bottom-up, very kind of local level, was an NGO in Honduras that was called FIPA. And they they basically were participatory groups of farmers that were experimenting with new seed varieties that they developed from their own farms and then were doing pretty rigorous testing of whether those met specific criteria that they as a group decided on the said, okay, we want to develop a new seed that will have these these characteristics. And then they would test those out on their own farms and then collectively over a number of years with several field trials decide this is the new variety that we want to we want to use. And the the NGO was really there to sort of support them through that process to kind of help formalize the the innovative work that farmers naturally have always been doing and work as a a catalyst to bring those very local level innovations and help scale them up. 
really also challenging to think about how does a model like that that's so farmer-driven mm-hmm. intersect with a very bureaucratic Ministry of Agriculture model that mm-hmm. wanted a standard package of seeds that they could distribute to farmers mm-hmm. and how do they balance that tension. And beyond what all of these means to farmers and coffee growers around the world, and especially in the global south, if we don't do adaptation well, we'll have very severe impact on food security around the world. Absolutely. Because this is where we get our produce from here in the United States, and it will have impacts on countries' GDP. Thinking about Colombia and our reliance on exporting coffee, and we're very proud of our amazing coffee, (laughs) but that might be in jeopardy in the years to come if the climate continues to change. So in what ways do you see us really reaching almost like a breaking point that it's it's a real severe problem, not just for those people who are there in the farm, but for everyone? Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. One of the things that's really interesting about the agricultural sector is that we are so globally integrated. Mm-hmm. And about 50% of the U.S fruits are imported and 80% of U.S. seafood is imported. So really, really high reliance on on external production, most of which is from developing countries. And a lot of it is by smallholder producers. So the interconnections within the, the global food supply chain are much, much stronger than I think most of us recognize. Uh, We we pay a lot of attention to kind of the food that we're able to get at the local farmer's market. Um, But when we think about what percentage of the actual consumption that is, it's actually pretty small. The other thing that is interesting to think about is the way that we talk about climate change impacting smallholder producers and the most vulnerable, but agriculture around the world is vulnerable. And that's true in the U.S. as well. Um, I think we've seen that a lot recently with the Central Valley of California, where the extended drought in California had dramatic impacts on both the amount of production, but also in a lot of ways on prices. Mm-hmm. And within the U.S., that's going to have major distributional uh, impacts as well of kind of who's going to be able to bear the costs of increased food prices mm-hmm. and who's not. And we, the U.S. Is, subsidizes food prices quite a lot. And so compared to many other countries in the world, we pay a lot less for our food um, as a percentage of our income. But that's not true for everyone in the U.S. Of course, it's going to be the most vulnerable that, again, will be most impacted by these increases in prices. This is yet another way in which changing climate is going to impact those who are most vulnerable. And that's Mm -hmm. been a theme throughout this podcast in many episodes. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe on your favorite listening platform and follow us on Instagram at Cooler Earth. New episodes air every Thursday before your morning cup of coffee. Stay tuned for next week's episode and thanks for listening. Stay cool.